Another week and another episode of Scarlet Fever. Like the bad penny that you just can't get rid of, we're back and we're better than ever, bringing you the latest in Husker Athletics news. After a startling three-match losing streak during the end of non-conference play, Nebraska Volleyball has won their last six matches, sweeping five of those six opponents. The only non-sweep? A win in Happy Valley against number 13, Penn State, on the road last weekend. How much progress have the Huskers made? Plus, Husker baseball wrapped up fall ball this week with three inter-squad scrimmages at Haymarket Park. What do we like out of what we saw from Will Bolt's squad this week? You'll find out. And finally, another heartbreaking loss for Nebraska football, but is Scott Frost off the hot seat with the performance of his team so far this season? I think yes, but Landon and I will debate and break down what we saw from the Huskers on Saturday. Plus, we'll look ahead to their showdown with the Gophers in Minneapolis this Saturday. But first, the best thing each of us saw this week is coming up next. Hey all, welcome back to another episode of Scarlet Fever. You can follow my co-host Landon Wirt on Twitter at Landon Wirt, L-A-N-D-O-N-W-I-R-T. You can find me at Hanson15 underscore Hanson, that is spelled H-A-N-S. E-N. Don't forget, this is a podcast of the Daily Nebraskan, so give at Daily NEB and at DN Sports a follow for all of your campus news from the students who live it every day. Once again, at Daily NEB and at DN Sports. Well, another week is in the books, and we begin this show like we do every week with the best thing we saw in the past week. So, Landon, what is yours? Yeah, so the best thing I saw this week was actually last night. I have made a pledge with my roommates for a couple of years now. We tried it last year, didn't really work. This year, we are committed to getting into the NHL. Um, Hockey is back. The first night of the regular season was on Tuesday night. Um, The Seattle Kraken played the Vegas Golden Knights, and the Penguins played the Lightning. I got to catch the uh, Seattle Kraken game. I'm going to become a Seattle Kraken fan. And I just really enjoyed the way ESPN did the broadcast. ESPN regained rights to the NHL after losing it for a while to NBC. I think it was the first time hockey had been on ESPN's main channel since 2003. And I was really impressed with the with the whole production of it. They did this little segment here in the second period called, I think it was The, the Rush, where the announcers were silent and they just, you know, played the sights and sounds and whistles of the game. And it was so cool. You know, hockey on TV is kind of tough to watch because the puck's so small, but getting that, like, up-close view of how fast-paced the game is and all that, plus uh, the game I sat down to watch all of, the Kraken and Golden Knights, was a good game, too. Uh, Seattle came back from down 3 nothing and tied it and then got scored on late with a Vegas player kicking the, ball, the puck into the net, which I wasn't really sure that was a thing that you could do in hockey, but I guess you can. Um, and it was really fun. So I'm going to get into hockey this year, and I really enjoyed um, the first night of NHL broadcast on ESPN. I thought they did a good job, so that was the best thing I saw this week. Yeah, yeah. How many of those are on, I think, what, what like 160-some of their games are broadcast between ESPN and ESPN Plus? Yeah, it's going to be a lot. There's Get ready for a lot of NHL content on the ESPNs during the week. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, well, and then there's a little segue there for me because uh, Hulu has live sports, uh, as <laughs> many of you may know, uh, and ESPN Plus. So this is my runner-up, actually. I kind of had I had two this week. Uh, so it's no secret for those of you who do know me that I love the shows that Hulu puts up there, whether it's FX with you know stuff like Fargo uh, or some of their originals. I love it. So this week I started watching a show called Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. Um, which is a show with James Franco. And basically, he goes into the past to stop the assassination of JFK, uh, which sounds really cool until... And this is the part where, like, I can't decide. Like, I can't decide if this is the dumbest show I've ever seen in my life or if it's actually, like, kind of smart. Because there's, there's both. But, like, it sounds really cool when you think, yeah, he's a spy or he's being sent back by the U.S. government. No, he's just a teacher. And the person who sent him back was the dude who, like, runs the diner, the town diner. And, like, he's literally, like, Franco is literally in the diner signing the divorce papers with his wife. And then the diner guy comes out and he's basically just like, ah, I'm, I've, he said he, he gets, like, cancer out of the blue. And he's like, you were just fine two minutes ago. And then you come out of the back room of your diner and you have cancer. Well, he goes back 
the diner owner goes back into the back of his closet, and if you walk back far enough, it's like October 20th, 1960, and you always go back to the same day. Uh, and so he had just been, like, chilling in there. It's like Narnia rules. Like, you come back out, and it's not much later than when you went back in. So he had spent, like, three years in the 1960s trying to stop the assassination of JFK, except he failed. And then he comes back, and he's, like, super old. And the none of the rules make any sense. Like, the reason the burgers are so cheap at the diner are because, like, he's been going back to the same butcher shop in 1960 and, like, buying all the beef for cheap and then coming back to the present. It, like, there's so, like I'm like, why, why would you even put that detail in there? That doesn't need to be there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm an episode in. Uh, it's, I, like I said, I can't decide if it's the dumbest thing I've ever ever watched before or if because or if it's like kind of smart i don't know i my, really can't my call. brain is in a pretzel i'm so confused yeah. that does seem like a lot of unnecessary detail like james franco can't really go wrong there but then there's just so much oddity around that. well the worst part he wrote the whole thing oh and, god and here's the, the <laughs> awful. here's the sports connection for you uh so the way they make money is the the diner guy went back the first time and he wrote down every like for each day he wrote down a sports event and so the way that you make they make their money is they take whatever he had left in his last run through and they go back and they bet on sporting events because they know what's going to happen oh my gosh so we'll see I'll be deeper into the show by the time we get into next week's episode. But I was like, wow, this is really cool. It's got like an 8.9 on IMDb, James Franco. And I'm like, what in the world is this? It's a nightmare. I hope it connects itself for your sake. But I'm very, very confused after listening to the episode one synopsis. And, okay, and, you know, so the real best thing for me, that that was the runner-up, okay? But And Landon was pretty upfront last week about things. And I'm going to – I think I'm going to be the same. Like, this last week for me has just sucked. Um, there's just been a lot of stuff that has not gone the right way. Uh, and that'll probably continue into the next week or two as well. Uh, but I think the important thing, and that's why we have this segment, is to realize, like, there's also some pretty good stuff that happened to me this last week, too. And so I, I wanted to highlight that um, because I think, again, which is part of why we have this, we have a tendency to focus on all the bad stuff. And so to start and highlight the good things first is important. Um, and so basically what happened was just by happenstance, uh, I got a call from Sean Callahan on Thursday afternoon asking if I wanted to go do the Midland football game, do play by play for the Fremont station. And I took him up on it. And so that's going to be my job, um, for the rest of the school years doing their, uh, their football games on Saturday. So that's, I'm really excited for that. I'm really thankful for that opportunity. That was a really cool thing that, that happened this weekend, and it was fun. It was fun to watch. Uh, you know, they're an interesting they're an interesting team, um, kind of struggling with injuries. Been there, done that um, with, with, with teams. But it's exciting. I'm excited to do that in the future. So that, unless Landon has more words to say, we'll wrap no, it up. that was just me clapping into the microphone. I'm, yeah. I've said it like congratulations of course it's a really really big big deal big gig i'm looking forward to it i need to i need to tune in i need details on how to tune in to follow well yeah i, I mean listen. we can certainly give them to you uh i believe it's uh, on i think uh 98 9 in fremont um sorry let me make sure let me give you the right the exact um, i was gonna say is there any way for me a hypothetical in minneapolis on Saturday, yeah. Well, and so they, I believe they stream off their off their website. But yeah, okay. it's ninety eight nine. So yeah. Big Dog ninety eight nine FM thirteen forty uh, AM. Uh, so Saturday we're off. We have, we have a bye week this week. Oh, but okay. uh, we'll wrap the year with Concordia, Doan, Hastings, and Mount Marty. Mount Marty, based out of Yankton, South Dakota. It's their first year as a football program. So luckily, that's a home game. I'm not driving to Yankton. Uh, on, a, on a Saturday. But um, so, yeah, yeah, that is where things are with that. But let's turn our attention here to Husker football. Another close loss. Scott Frost now 5 and 16 all time uh, in one score games. And I, I mean, what do you think the biggest takeaway is? I was really encouraged by the resiliency that I saw 
on Saturday, even though they couldn't finish it off. Uh, the fact that they came down from 13 down and then 17, uh, what, what was it? Uh, was it 21-7 down or whatever? Or 19-7. Yeah. 19-7 down. That they came back from both those deficits, that was really impressive. Yeah. Uh, in my immediate headspace after the game went to, this is another missed opportunity. Nebraska had it right there. There were good things that they did, like intercept Cade McNamara for the first time and hold the lead on Michigan for the first time all season. But somehow, some way, in a different way from the other ways that it had been happening, Nebraska just couldn't make enough plays down the stretch to ultimately come out on top. And I feel bad because I kind of spoke a game like this into existence last week on the pod. I pretty much said like the exact same lines that I you know travel back in time a week. But I do agree that one of the biggest things, you know, a week, almost a week removed from the game now, is how Nebraska was able to adjust offensively in the second half. The first half was really, really bad in terms of what we've been able to see from Nebraska offensively so far this season and what actually resulted. 133 total yards, 2.3 yards per carry, one of six on third downs. It was ugly, ugly football. And the way that Nebraska was able to flip that on its head, gain close to 300 total yards in the second half, the rushing average goes up per play from 2.3 to 6.7, 101 yards on the ground to complement that. Third downs still weren't great, and maybe that's an area Nebraska can look to improve on going forward. Two of five in the second half for three of 11 total, which isn't ideal. Um... But yeah, Nebraska really opened things up in the second half, and I don't know that was you know just a counter of we're going to be really vanilla first half that's going to set up some things in the second, but I, I'd like to think that there's a balance there. <laughs> Hopefully there's a balance there where it's not just one extreme, other extreme. There's a little bit of both mixed in. But it was cool to see Nebraska adjust, especially after early season storylines of Frost guessing wrong and things right. like that. So that's encouraging that Nebraska was able to adjust and really come out flying, especially in that third quarter against a Michigan team that will be competing for a Rose Bowl berth, I think, maybe, when this is all said and done. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that coming to pass. And, you know, I, I think Michigan's a lot better than I gave them credit for going into this this last week. Uh, I was impressed with that. Uh, yeah, the defense is definitely legit, and there are some good pieces on offense. You, know, you wonder what they would be if they were 100% in terms of their offensive skill players. Uh, so that's definitely something that I think could maybe sit in the back of Michigan fans' minds if the back half of the season doesn't go as well as the front half. But I, and the other thing too that I think it was interesting. I, that so all the talk that there was about the officials, and we'll get into a little bit of this, I think. But I they had one bad quarter. The second quarter was really bad. I mean, awful. Maybe the worst quarter I think I've ever seen individually in terms of, of officiating. But. Outside of that second quarter, you had the joint possession, but, man, that might have been it, really, for that officiating crew. And I, that could be just a spotty memory. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, no, I I agree. The second quarter was really strange. You know, it's it's always difficult to blame officiating for a loss either way, especially when, from Nebraska's perspective, you had two opportunities to either tie or win the game later right. on. I mean, in college football, you know, even after Martinez fumbles and Michigan kicks the field goal, a minute and change is still more than enough time to yep. get down the field with, I mean, even if with one timeout, with the way college football rules are set up, with the clock stopping after every first down. But it's hard to argue that one call. You know, very rarely it's like, oh, the refs, like, actually put a touchdown on the board for the other team. Like, that doesn't happen very often, but it kind of did on Saturday with the JoJo Doman pass interference mm-hmm. call that would have forced Michigan into, I think it would have been a third and third and medium, third and long. Instead, the Wolverines had the ball at the two and are able to punch it in. That call was really, really strange to me. The ball didn't look catchable, and the contact is still minimal, despite the Michigan people in my mentions arguing to themselves because I wasn't going to engage that it wasn't. That call was really strange, and, yeah, just lots and lots of reviews. Bad spots, missed things on the field that looked really obvious for me, six floors up on the press box. 
they that was a second quarter to forget, and as a result, it really, really slowed the pace of the game down, which is something that you hate to see with an officiator. Right. Group. I mean, they got out of the way in the second half, and things got a lot better for both offenses. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think generally when we see that head official, bad things happen. That's just kind of what, I re- what I've remembered. I just, like, who would have thought that, like, the fact that when they went from the first quarter to the second quarter and – I don't. I can't. I wish I remember his name, but the head official was just like, "This is the end," and just left it off and didn't say anything <laughs> else. Like, who would have thought that that was probably like maybe like, like fifth or sixth on the list of the craziest things that officiating crew did. All right. Throughout the corner, throughout the course of that game. Dumb question. The referee is the head referee, correct? Right. Yeah, or the white hat, one of the two. Okay. Yeah. The referee names confuse me because then you've got the referee, and then none of the other officials are technically called referees. You have umpire, linesman, line judge, back judge, field judge, side judge, center judge. So if we're thinking of the referee, that would be Reggie Smith. Yes. Thank you. Yes. So yeah, the Reggie Smith crew. I mean, like that. There, there's been some bad memories for me with the Reggie Smith crew, uh, in general. Uh, and, and again, like it's true, like the JoJo Doman PI was suspect. They, they did, there was no delay of game to on the play that was immediately following yeah. that. Uh, but again, you know, for all of those things being in the way, Nebraska was still right there, and that was encouraging. It's, it just sucks to lose again, and you know, I think that's obvious, but. When you look at that game, and this one didn't hurt for me as much as Michigan State did for some reason, which is interesting to me, actually. I didn't really feel anything after this one. Uh, but, you know, I, I think when you when you look at this game, and it's a common theme, I think, in a lot of Nebraska's close losses, that you think about how many variables, yes, the officials, yes, the JoJo Doman uh, PI, yes, the did Martinez get forward progress or not, uh, was that stopped when the when the ball was popped out? Um, so many different things that all have to go against Nebraska. All those variables have to go against. If one of them changes, one of them changes even slightly, you know, maybe Adrian hits Levi Falk going over the middle and wasn't pressured right on that last drive. If one of those things changes, Nebraska wins, and they all went the other way. Yeah, and that was the point that I got out in my column post game was yes, Nebraska had all these things working against it, but it was right there. Like it seemed that they had overcome the bad first half and the officiating and all of these other variables to get in a position to win, which is why it felt different. I don't know. It it was just a different level, I guess. Michigan State was bad for its own reasons, mainly because the Spartans were just so anemic in the second half and had no they should have had no business being in the game with how little they did offensively. Right. This, you know, Michigan kind of was able to do whatever it wanted up to a certain point on the field in the second half. Nebraska's defense deserves immense credit for holding the Wolverines to 3 on many occasions where it looked like they were on their way to get 7. But I don't know. I'm really just struggling for words to how often these decisions. There's got to be a reversal of fortune somewhere. Right. Like statistical trends say that all of the things that continue to not break Nebraska's way just can't continue to happen. But for whatever reason, <laughs> I for whatever reason, it just isn't happening right now. I don't know. There's no, and the worst part about it, it, it seems like there's no one really culpable for it. I mean, I don't know. There, there hasn't been any egregious. I mean, I can't really point to an egregious. Yeah, I mean, this Michigan. week again, right? I don't know, right? And I think Scott had his best. Scott and Matt Lubick together had their best combined game as a play caller, yeah. calling group in their tenure here. Um, so I, I think again, one uh, we'll, we'll move in. You know, I, I, I really one of the things I was surprised by was that there was not a lot of negativity on social media following this uh, from from anybody, from even some of the biggest uh, Scott Frost attractors in the media. Uh, there, there really was not a lot of pushback at all. And so it got me to thinking, and I truly believe this at this point, you know, barring an epic collapse, especially considering, uh, well, barring an epic collapse, if Nebraska goes 5-7, and seven, I think Scott Frost still keeps his job. And 
that may be crazy, but you listen to the way he talks about Trev Alberts, especially this week. Um, you you think about the schedule that they've played. They've currently have played or will play five of the teams that are currently in the top ten. And you know, I I don't think they're going to go five and seven. I think they're going to beat Wisconsin and go six and six. But you know, barring an epic collapse, barring a regression back to the Illinois level against Minnesota this week. I, th- I think he keeps his job, even if they go 5-7 and seven and miss a bowl. Yeah, I do agree that Frost's job at this point seems to be firmly cemented in stone. The point that I came across on social media that I found pretty interesting is under previous administrations, Nebraska loses games like this 62-3 to three or whatever. And, you know, the point that, yo, well, Nebraska lost to Ohio State 49-7, to seven, that, you know, in year two of Frost's tenure, that's not where he wants or had hoped the team would be at this point. You know, that that wasn't a finished product yet. What we're seeing now most Saturdays to me feels like a finished finished product, which is something that I couldn't really say after watching the first three iterations of teams that he's rolled out at Nebraska. This feels like a team that has everything that his successful teams at UCF has, an experienced veteran quarterback, an experienced defense with lots of quality players at you know the important positions where they need to be quality experienced secondary on top of that and a nice complement of skill position players that are equally talented and players with lots of time to develop at Nebraska so yeah. it's, it feels like a finished product which is something you right. can't say and I well, think the only at, thing that's missing is the win yeah exactly right. and that that will come you know Nebraska's not going to go undefeated next year, of course, but, you know, maybe this year one to year two is the year one to year two that Nebraska fans may be looking for all along. Like, this might be the the jumping point, for lack of a better word, for success next year, as opposed to the year one, year two comparison everyone wanted to make because of the year one to year two successes that Frost had at UCF. The American is not the Big Ten, and looking back at, you know, sophomore in college me, I, I should have beat myself on the head for thinking that such a jump could happen. Because I wrote an article back when I wasn't covering football at the time. I'm like, can Nebraska make this year one to year two jump? It's unrealistic. The Big Ten's not the American, even if, you know, Nebraska were to roll. The competition's harder. So I think that this team's close to a finished product. I think that what we've seen this year secures in my mind that Scott Frost is probably the guy moving forward, barring some sort of weird investigation or collapse and you know there's optimism here that maybe this season could be the start of something at least that's what i'm well and again and this is contingent on one thing for me i think i i think this program is immensely successful next year if adrian martinez comes back for for another season because you look at the schedule next year it's northwestern north dakota and northwestern will be better uh but north dakota georgia georgia southern oklahoma Rutgers, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Purdue, Illinois, Iowa. So your crossovers are Indiana and Michigan next year, uh, plus Rutgers as well. Uh, that, to me, is very winnable. And, it, you know, as you look at every game on this schedule next year, you know, if they were played today with this team, that, I mean, so to me, but a lot of that is contingent on does Adrian or Martinez make a return or not. Yeah, and, you know, as we wrap up this regular season, it's crazy to me to think that, including today, there's five games left. That's going to be the big topic of conversation. And whether or not, you know, one way or the other, what Martinez decides could be very contingent on what Nebraska looks like next year. You're right. The the schedule next year, particularly the non-conference, does not really have much of a bite to it outside of Oklahoma. Uh, We're going to see Caleb Williams. That's fun, right. uh, probably. But North Dakota and North Dakota and Georgia Southern don't inspire much uh, much fear. Rutgers and Indiana are two teams that I project, you know, after this year would be will be significantly worse. Minnesota's in a weird spot, as we'll get to, and then I don't really know what to make of Wisconsin's fortunes. I can't, I can't make a beat on Northwestern at all. Yeah, this roster is really bad. But generally, you know, after a year like this, Fitz comes back with a really solid team. So, yeah, uh, there's. The schedule is, without Ohio State, it's crazy how, you know, light this schedule looks. And 
there are opportunities here for Nebraska next year should things roll around, and, you know, it is all contingent, of course, on what Martinez wants to do. Yeah, or, I mean, hell, I mean, there's going to be guys out there in the quarterback transfer portal, too. I mean, so... I know, I know, we're too far down the road. Roll it back in, reel it back in. But, uh, yeah, it, it is interesting, especially if they keep, you know, Frost around um, beyond this year. And, again, I I, th- I, I just – I haven't listened to the Bussing with the Boys podcast from this week with Trev and Scott. But from everything I heard in Scott's press conference on Monday, that relationship is in a good place. And I, that's very – you know, if, if Scott wants to keep his job, that's a must. Yeah, I haven't listened to that podcast yet either. It's something that I want to get to. That might be, honestly, uh, that might be my pre-drive to Minnesota listen. I just sit down and take a listen to hear what those two had to say. But yeah, their their relationship does seem really good. And the fact that they take time or, and they took time to meet on Sunday after what was, what I can surmise, a pretty emotional week for Nebraska right. football, right? There was a lot of fanfare going into the game. You know, campus was buzzing. They had Will Compton here to record their podcast. They sat down and did an interview. And then to lose like that in such a heartbreaking fashion after a back-and-forth game where both teams traded blows, it, I think, shows a vote of confidence that the two took time to meet, took time to talk. Right. So their, they their do relationship that, they do seems, that every week. Their relationship seems to be in a good place, which I think is really good for right. a coach that many pegged to be on the hottest of hot seats going on. I, I don't think he. I just. I don't think he is. He's anymore. not anymore. And my my thing is, if the if you know, he very much was after Illinois. But the thing is, it's, it appears that Illinois is an outlier at this point. And of course, there's five. You know, there's more games left to go this year to to determine that. But uh, at least for now. Uh, but let's turn our attention to one of those games that's coming up. You're heading up to Minnesota this weekend. Uh, now, Nebraska is going to be down. Teddy Brohaska, that is the one bit of news that is unfortunate. He's He is done uh, for the year, most likely. Uh, I, I believe almost certainly he is. Um, they did talk about they might be able to try to keep him redshirted since he only played a half. Uh, he technically played five games, but it was relatively limited snaps on a couple of those, so hopefully... Uh, they can, and Nebraska coaching staff is going to have to find a way to see if they can uh, pull that off uh, with Teddy and keep an extra year of eligibility. But unfortunately, his year is done. On the other hand, though, Nebraska doesn't have much to complain about because Minnesota has their top two running backs down and their starting guard entered the transfer portal. So what is going on up there in Minneapolis? Yeah, this is actually doing a little preview and, and dating ourselves here. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. On Thursday morning, I'll have my What to Watch For article for this game out. And my first point is Minnesota is exactly what you said, in a really weird spot. Minnesota's lost Mo Ibrahim, which, you know, it really stinks to see a player of that caliber go down so early in the season. Mm. But he'd also been a thorn in Nebraska's side in their last two matchups and is one of the best running backs in college football. And then Minnesota loses Trey Potts against Purdue um, in their last matchup. Uh, Minnesota's on October 2nd. And then you have uh, Dunlap leaving, their starting guard in the transfer portal. Yep. And then on top of all of these things, Tanner Morgan hasn't really been that great. And the magical 2019 30 touchdown season, at least from his perspective, appears to be fading further and further into the distance. I think he's completing just a shade above 50% of his passes right now, and it's really been on the whole underwhelming. I know the uh, lack of consistency at Minnesota's skill position corps has also had a lot to do with that, but Minnesota's just in a really weird place right now, and yeah, Nebraska doesn't have a lot to complain about because this is a very depleted Minnesota team, but a depleted Minnesota team, lest we not forget, has also beaten Nebraska. See 2020 when Minnesota was missing 33 players due to COVID. So. Yeah, I think that's the thing that sticks out to me the most because you, when we look back on that game, you, a lot of Nebraska fans like to talk down on P.J. Fleck, and to a certain extent I, I agree with that some of the time. <laughs> Uh, I think he's a little odd some of the time. Uh, But I had a lot of respect for him after that game because they go on the road, and granted there are no fans last year, but they are down basically 25% of their roster. And they come here and they win. It was close on the scoreboard, 
Uh, but it was more the, the, that thing was a lot more separated than the scoreboard showed. I felt like after everything was said and done, I had a lot of respect for Fleck. Now we look at this game, and you're having a guard transfer midseason, and you know things aren't going well, and some of that's due to injuries. But th- this program is really up and down in a lot of ways, and I'm again just wondering like what in the world is going on. Yeah, I personally am getting a. I'm very much looking forward to getting an in-person look at PG, PJ Fleck and his antics. Uh, he's one of the big, opposing Big Ten coaches that I've the most one of the most look forward to seeing him and Harbaugh back-to-back weeks is going to be yeah, very, there you go. very pleasant. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. But yeah, I'm not really sure. And PJ Fleck is a a good coach. Don't get that twisted. He took Western Michigan to a New Year's Six Bowl game, which is very hard to do. But in terms of how to evaluate the Golden Gophers right now at this point in the season, I keep coming up blank because you talk about an inconsistent team, Minnesota fits that to a T. So Minnesota has the season opening performance against Ohio State where they go blow for blow with them, but ultimately the defense kind of crumbles and C.J. Stroud and the rest of Ohio State's offense breaks these long plays in the second half to come out with a win. And then they play Miami of Ohio and barely squeak out a win in the first game post-Mo Ibrahim 30-26. to And then after that, uh, where what happens after that? Oh, then they play Bowling Green and and lose to a bad Mac school. And they made as, a terrible choice to go for it inside their own 20 on like a fourth and four or something yeah, in the first half. Yeah, 30 and a half point favorites. And then they beat Purdue 20 to 13. Minnesota, outside of the Ohio State game, has not played a top 100 offense in, mm. F, in the FBS this year. And that was to my point about Minnesota's defense. But I think it's worth exploring when you discuss Minnesota as a whole. This is a team that, yeah, stands at three and two but has been largely untested outside of the Ohio State game. So I think that when we look at Minnesota, Saturday is going to tell us a lot about how the Golden Gophers fare in the st- in the scope of the Big Ten entering the second half of their season. So I think that we don't know a whole lot about Minnesota, and I'm looking forward to finding out exactly. I mean, we have some clues based on you know past offensive identities and what we might expect from them on Saturday, but... They kind of are a bit of an unknown, which is weird to say, you know, entering their sixth game of the season, but I do think it's true. What's the biggest thing you're afraid about, I think, on the Nebraska side? You know, is it that Minnesota's coming into this off a bye and Nebraska's heading into a bye? And are you, is there some worry there, do you think, that they won't be focused? I think that the press conference talk from Monday and Tuesday would probably dispel most of those fears for people, but... Is that something you're worried about, or maybe is it something different? No, and the reason I think that is one of the central points I want to get into when talking about Minnesota is this team always seems to appear on Nebraska's schedule at a critical juncture in the season, and Nebraska players know it. 2018, Frost's first victory at Nebraska came over Minnesota. 2019, Nebraska goes in there, and Frost specifically referenced this game on Monday when Nebraska went in there high-flying a bit at 4-2. and two. Mm. They didn't have Martinez. But then P.J. Fleck kind of punked him, and they Minnesota just completely dominated that game 34-7. to The loss ended up sending Nebraska into a little bit of a spiral, and, you know, of course the Huskers ended up crashing out at 5-7, and which was incredibly disappointing based on the start to the season that they had. And then in 2020, the Minnesota COVID-19 game, that loss cemented Frost's third consecutive losing season at Nebraska. And now you look at this opponent in 2021, Nebraska sitting at 3-4 and four before a bye, with five games left in its regular season, and it's widely regarded that if the if Nebraska wants to make a bowl for the first time under Frost, this game has to be a win. So it should come as no surprise that, of course, P.J. Flex Bunch finds its way out of the schedule here, but Nebraska, the last couple of years, they said it ad nauseum on Monday, have been out-physicaled and out-disciplined by Minnesota, and they seem to know that it will take a sound performance and a stout performance in order to get past a Golden Gopher team that's really, really had their number over the last couple of years. So I don't think that there's any way Nebraska looks past this game or is too tired for this game or is not up for this game because based on past matchups, they can't really afford to take Minnesota lightly at all, even with all the unknowns on their offense. I agree, and that does have me a little bit nervous uh, because P.J. Fleck has beaten 
Nebraska before with basically nothing, uh, or at least how that's how it looks like on, on, the, on the front side. And on the other side, after the game's over, you're like, well, that was certainly not nothing. Uh, now, you know, there's no Rashad Bateman, uh, and there wasn't last year, but there's no, there's no Mo Ibrahim. And, in fact, Potts, at a certain level, uh, was just about as scary. I mean, he was producing very, very similar numbers. Now Nebraska won't have to face him either, uh, which, is, which is, you know, certainly surprising because, again, I was kind of shocked that this, that injury was announced even. Then you had that late transfer. There's a lot of moving parts here. But I think unlike last year, to me, it doesn't – there's nothing that makes me think that this team isn't focused for this game and isn't ready to win. And it was really interesting to hear really over the last two to three weeks to talk about the increased intensity from the coaching staff in terms of expectations and the like. Um, and you can certainly see it on the field. The other part of me is like, what, the, what took so long? Why wait till now to, to be intense uh, and expect a lot? But uh, I'm glad to see it. I mean, I get, I better late than never. Now the problem is you have to go ahead and turn it into a win on, on the road at Minnesota on Saturday. Yeah, but and I, and I do think one of the most important parts of this is this is Nebraska's eighth week in a row of playing a game. That weighs on you, and I really enjoyed what Frost had to say on Monday about how their coaching staff was making sure, you know, they took it easy a bit on Monday, took the pads off the guys. That's important for the grind of this season. It, it kind of is like NFL-ish in a way. In college, you're very rarely playing eight consecutive weeks without pause, and Nebraska's played the most games, correct me if I'm wrong, of any team in the country, mm. and will after this week too. So I th- think that at least from my perspective, the team seems to be taking care of itself pretty well. Uh, So I don't have any reason to believe that Nebraska will not be up for this early kickoff at uh, the former TCF Bank Stadium on Saturday. Well, who is going to win? At least according to Landon and I. We'll give you that, plus our top two college football bets of the week. Coming up next on 1-2-NU, I'm Grant Hanson alongside Landon Wirt, and you're listening to Scarlet Fever. Welcome back to Scarlet Fever. Grant Hansen alongside Landon Wirt. And it's time now for 1-2-NU, our top two college football bets of the week against the spread, plus the Nebraska game. Records as we enter our eighth episode. And it looks like this is we what our seventh week of doing this. And we didn't do it the first week. So seventh week of doing this. Landon, 8-9-1. That push being the Texas and TCU game from a couple of weeks ago. Last week, Landon goes two and one. The loss: Texas A&M and Alabama. <laughs> wow, I, I don't I, like. There's not only did I lose, but that, that should count for like five losses because Oof. not only did the 18 point favorite not cover, but then they then lost outright to Texas A&M team that I hate. So ugh. I don't blame Barf. you. I really don't blame you, though. I mean, like, how could you have thought that a two-loss Texas and A&M team that barely beat god-awful Colorado uh, was going to go and, and beat Alabama? I mean, there, there's a lot of emotion, and, you know, credit to credit to Jimbo Fisher because that was pretty cool. Uh, but Broke the streak. Yeah, no kidding. First Saban assistant to beat Saban. You so. know, I thought it was pretty ballsy of him to say, we're going to beat his ass. <laughs> while I'm here, uh, but he covered. He covered yeah. the spread on that. Look at on him that go. comment. So that was cool. Uh, chaos, man. Like now, the only team we're sure of is Georgia. And are we sure of Georgia? I mean, nobody you could be sure of at this point this year. And uh, down to five only, really. I mean, come on. Any other team loses to a two-loss Texas A&M team on their backup quarterback that barely beat Colorado, and you're far, far down the rankings. And Yes, I get it. Alabama, I think, deserves some amount of credit uh, because they're Alabama and because of the talent they have and the coach that they have. But still, I mean, just five, really? Just number five? Yeah, there are some interesting games left on Alabama's schedule, but I, it's tough for me to right now say that I have another loss pegged for them. They go at Mississippi State after this. They host Tennessee, and while Tennessee is playing really well this year, I, I can't see Tennessee going to Bama and winning LSU's down, then they're at Bama's seemingly annual November cakewalk against a really bad school against New Mexico State. The last two games for Alabama are interesting. They host Arkansas and go at Auburn in the Iron Bowl. 
We'll see what happens there. Uh, but, I mean, Bama at five seems a little generous following a really bad loss. Um, but the point of that uh, aside is I think that Bama will be right back in the top four when this is all said and done. So Landon's 8-9-1 on the year. I'm 10-8, and eight, another 3-0 and oh week for me. I had Nebraska winning outright, but they did cover that 3.5-point spread. And uh, as we look into this week... Uh, I'm sticking with some of the same. I'm sticking with some of the same teams. I am. I am. Georgia got me right with that uh, win over Vanderbilt, you know. So since then, I've just been on a tear. I'll stick with Georgia again this week. But Landon's first pick of the week. Yeah. Um. While the college football slate isn't super sexy this weekend, their e- ABC is doing this really cool doubleheader. I found this out actually while I was walking watching hockey last night. So boom, tying it back in. Yeah. There you go. Uh. They're doing this thing where it's the number two, number four, and number three. I don't know if I got that right, but Cincinnati, Iowa, and Oklahoma are all playing back to back to back on ABC, which I think is something that's really cool. It's exposing teams that you may not have had the chance to catch to a national audience. Uh, and interestingly enough, I'm picking games from two of that uh, triple header. So the first one I'm doing is Iowa-Purdue. Um, yeah, uh, I hate to do this, but it's time. Here we go. After somehow getting past Penn State last week, thanks to a Sean Clifford injury, mind you, Iowa's cakewalk to 11-0 begins this weekend against a Purdue squad that has scored exactly 13 points in its last three games. Oh. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence uh, as you now have to travel to Kinnick to play Iowa. If you're struggling to score on Minnesota and Illinois, boy, do I have some bad news for you because Iowa is neither of those teams. Purdue is a bottom 100 offense in the FBS, and Iowa, I think, might be too, but... Iowa's defense is playing objectively very well, and despite how much I dislike Iowa's brand of football, last weekend's game against Penn State should kickstart a real dominant stretch for Kirk Ferentz's crew. The loss of Riley Moss is concerning, but the rest of Iowa's secondary is just a bunch of ball hawks. I wouldn't be stunned if Iowa shut out Purdue, honestly, and won this game like 24-0 or something like that. The line is currently 12. It may have dipped back down to 11 and a half even when I was looking today. I think yeah, that's a bit of an over half, it's yeah. that's a bit of an overreaction and and I'll change it because 12 gives me an outright victory instead of a push, but I think it's a bit of an overreaction and people thinking that this veteran experienced Iowa squad is somehow going to look past Purdue. I think they won't. Iowa's got its sights set on a Big 10 championship appearance and to do that I'm pretty confident that Ference's crew knows that it can't afford to take anybody lightly after a couple of early season slip-ups against uh, Colorado State and the non-con specifically that bring, springs to mind. I like Iowa 31-10, to 10, but don't be surprised if, if Purdue's limited to a touchdown or less on Saturday. I don't see any way that the Boilermakers can keep this game competitive with the putrid offense they've been rolling out. Yeah, I thought Purdue was going to be an interesting team when they were pushing Notre Dame at the beginning of the uh, season, but man, since then... It's been rough stuff. It has been really, really rough stuff. Illinois, 13 points. It's a victory. Lost to Minnesota, also 13 points. And 13 points against Notre Dame. So 13 points again this week. Maybe. I don't know. Unlucky 13. They're just stuck repeating that number forever. It's Groundhog Day for for Purdue. Uh, But, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Iowa is – that defense is is real. You know, I I have a lot of questions about that offense still. But that defense is real. My number one pick of the week is the number one team in the country, Georgia versus number 11, Kentucky. Georgia is favored when I made this document at 23 and a half. That line has dipped to an even 23 points. I think Georgia is going to cover. I don't actually, let me change my mind on this. Sorry. I, I don't think Georgia is going to cover here. Listen, Kentucky's good. And this line basically says that Kentucky is as bad as Auburn or is, is as good as Auburn. This is about the same line from last week uh, for, for Georgia. In fact, I think it's actually more. They're giving more points this week than they did last week against Auburn. I don't think – I think Kentucky's legit. You know, Wandale's having a lot of success down there, Wandale Robinson, who transferred from Nebraska. And honestly, I, it's good to see that. I, I like seeing that for him. Uh, and I don't think Kentucky wins here. I think Georgia's defense is good. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, Wandale gets away for at least one. Uh, and Georgia wins it 28-14. to 14. So Kentucky will cover uh, as an underdog here, but I like Georgia to win, and I like Kentucky to make it interesting. Yeah, I like that. Uh, is that game 
that game's in the hedges, isn't it? It's going to be. Yes. <laughs> that's the only thing that scares me because. CBS 230. Georgia is a very, very scary team at home. But for, you know, the viewing public's sake, I, I hope that Kentucky can make that a game. Yeah, I do too. Your number two pick of the week. Yeah, uh, this was an official Landon Wirt last-minute pick change special because I really just want to take this time to talk about the mess that's happening at Oklahoma right now. Oklahoma defied incredible odds and came back from down a ton to beat Texas last Saturday, which might be good news for my pokes playing the Longhorns on Saturday because maybe Texas's morale is completely shot. But maybe OU is is in as big of a pickle as a number four team in the country can be right now. The whole Spencer Rattler, Caleb Williams drama has reached like code red levels. Uh, and I'd like to take this time as, you know, we discuss here on Wednesday to give a shout out to our friends at the OU Daily because they put together an excellent piece of journalism on Monday, taking binoculars to go up high to a building on OU's campus and observe practice. Um, you know, nobody told them they couldn't, so they went ahead and did to take a look at who was getting reps when uh, and with what team. Of course, Caleb Williams was the one that came into the game and led that inspired comeback over Texas, but Spencer Rattler did come in late. Uh, He converted a two-point conversion that I think either tied the game or gave Oklahoma the lead. So he did factor, but Caleb Williams did a majority of the heavy lifting and looked great while doing so. And now this whole drama has unfolded between the two of them. The OU Daily put out an article article observing, you know, what they saw at practice and the like and filled that in with quotes from Spencer Rattler's dad, who was basically just saying, we're focused on the national championship and what happens after that happens after that. Not good. And as a result, Lincoln Riley has now come out and said, no media availability until after the TCU game. Uh, So... OU's in this little weird spot, and I assume that Caleb Williams probably is going to be the starter, but I think that this media circus distraction thing might end up hurting Oklahoma on Saturday night. I need to look at where that game is again, but... Looks like you have it at... It's at TCU is where is you've it? got it at. Um... No, no, it's it's at, it's, at, it's, it's, okay. it's 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 at the it's palace. Based on, based it's at the how you had it written. Yeah, it's at the palace. I wasn't sure. Um, but yeah, TCU is a team that I took against in recent weeks. But they did annoyingly play better against Texas, and then they came out and beat Texas Tech fifty-two to thirty-one last weekend in a game that kind of flew under the radar, but is relatively important in terms of the Big 12's pecking order. Getting a win like that on the road has to inspire confidence. I think TCU's playing a little bit better and they're doing so through a really nice ground attack. I the issue is TCU's defense isn't very good and they just can they give up 30 points a night. I like TCU plus 13 and a half still though. I think that OU comes out a little bit distracted and TCU is able to get some things going on the ground, but I think OU wins 38 to 30. So I like Texas Christian to cover the 13 and a half there. Yeah, that's that's a weird story. That is a weird and it's a cool story. I think too with with the the binoculars and all that. Uh, that that's something else. And then they, I mean, that obviously got to them. You know, they shut down. And I was just reading about it on Twitter too while you were talking about it that they had shut down uh, media access for the whole week <laughs> yeah. there in Oklahoma. That's something Hilarious. else. My second pick of the week. I'm gonna go to uh, the Landon Wertwell, aka Michigan State. Listen, they are four one and one against the spread, and they get doubted every week. I don't understand it at all. They go to Indiana this week. Michigan State is a four-and-a-half-point favorite. I like them to win by a touchdown or more. Listen, Indiana's good, but Michigan State is better. They really are. I think this is a legit team uh, that, again, I doubted at the beginning, but here they are, undefeated, and they're going to take care of business again at Indiana. This team is a team that's going to take care of business. Now, can they win the big game? That's That's a big question mark, right? They were tested by Nebraska. But can they take care of business against some of these middle-tier to lower uh, opponents in the Big Ten? Yes. And they can do it convincingly. Four and a half, that's just disrespectful. 31 to 20 Michigan State. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've talked on here a couple of times about how Iowa's schedule is so light down the stretch. Michigan State's is exactly the opposite. Going at Indiana, which is a game I do think they'll win in convincing fashion, but, you know, going to Bloomington's never pleasant. Host Michigan. At Purdue is a little bit of a light walk in there, but then they host Maryland. Maryland's a team that's going to be fighting for bowl eligibility, and then you close the season with at Ohio State and Penn State. So mm-hmm. not fun, and I think one of the reasons why maybe that line's so low is because they think it's a little bit of a look-ahead spot for Mel Tucker's squad ahead of the Michigan game, but I think that 
the Spartans will do enough to to roll there and take care of business. For Indiana them. off a of bye too, but they just got shut out by Penn State a week ago, and they barely got past Western Kentucky the week before that. Yeah. All right, time for the Nebraska pick. Where you got it? I I don't know what to make of Minnesota. I think that one of two things will probably happen. It's either a game that is surprisingly close down the stretch, like the odds makers feel it is with the three and a half point spread, or Nebraska Northwestern's them and rolls like forty nine to ten, and you know the game's no contest. I I'm picking somewhere in the middle, so that way I can I can cover my bases either way. I. Minnesota's I think Nebraska's offensive line is going to struggle a little bit. Minnesota has a couple of nice pass rushers in Boya Mafe and um the other one whose name I Oh yeah, Boya Mafe and Thomas Rush. They combined for eight and a half sacks, thirty tackles. I think that those two will give Nebraska's new look offensive line a little bit of trouble in the early going. But ultimately I do think Nebraska will has, you know, the firepower and the weapons and, you know, the more consistent weapons at that to win this game comfortably. I like the Huskers 28-13. to 13. Um, Maybe there's a little bit of a sleepwalk with that 11 a.m. start that Nebraska isn't quite used to after having a couple of uh, couple of late kicks in a row. So I think that Nebraska has a little bit of a slow start. The offensive line struggles a little bit, but by the second half, Nebraska hits its stride and rolls. Yeah, this is. I feel a lot more confident about this than in years past against Minnesota. And I've, I've gone up and down at a lot of points during this year. I thought Minnesota was a surefire loss at the beginning of the year. Uh, then Minnesota went to a likely win. Then to an I'm not sure. I mean, it is all over the place with this team. Now I'm feeling I'm, I'm I'm feeling generally pretty confident going into this week. And this team doesn't strike me as a team that is going to come up here and not want to be there like they had talked about on Monday's press conference from a couple of years ago, the last trip they made to Minnesota. This team I think will be focused, and it, I think they get it done 35-17, a little bit more than what you were willing to give them, but. I think this offense is really hitting its stride. It's at a good spot. As long as the offensive line doesn't hold them back with penalties and turnovers uh, from from Martinez or whoever it may be, uh, this team is going to be just fine because I, I, Minnesota is going to struggle mightily against this defense. I, I think just, I mean, barely any skill position players available. Tanner Morgan has not been dynamic this year in any way, shape, or form. Down an offensive lineman. Nebraska's defense is going to have a day. So even if the offense can't pick it up, the defense is going to put the offense in enough short field and good positions that Nebraska wins it by a solid margin. Yeah, I and you know I certainly see that as a possible outcome too. I just the only thing that holds me back a little bit is flex history against Frost. But I mean, in order for Nebraska to overcome that and get over the hill a little bit, I think it's going to take a little bit of hard work. And I I don't think it'll come as easy. But you know I'm hoping it does. Of course, it make for an easy story and. You know, a more resounding feeling of where the team's at heading into the bye week for sure. So both of us have Nebraska getting to four and four on the year. I am ten and eight this week with picks of Kentucky to cover as an underdog at Georgia, Michigan State to cover as a favorite at Indiana, and Nebraska to cover as the favorite at Minnesota. For Landon, he is eight, nine, and one. He has Iowa, the favorite, covering minus twelve. TCU as an underdog going to Oklahoma. And uh, Landon is eating the 13.5 points there, 38-30, and then also rolling with Nebraska as a favorite on the road, 28-13 against Minnesota. We'll check back with you next week to see how these go, but we'll move on. Husker baseball, Husker volleyball talk coming up next. This is Scarlet Fever. Welcome back to Scarlet Fever. I'm Grant Hansen alongside Landon Wirt. And Husker Baseball hopped into the last sector of their fall season this week with three inter-squad scrimmages, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, each of them seven innings. I called the Tuesday one, listened to the Monday one, uh, and it was interesting. It was an interesting week, and it, it was good to see Husker Baseball back out there again because I forgot until I went to Haymarket once more this week how much I enjoyed being there and I enjoyed this fall slash spring weather that we're that we're going to get next uh, next spring it got me excited looking forward to next March yeah I am too and you know I've kind of said this I think on the podcast before but I do live in the North Bottoms Haymarket Park is not a very far walk away for me 
And I kind of want to make it a goal to, you know, go some go to some more games as a fan in the spring. You know, basketball will be winding down uh, in terms of coverage. And I want to, you know, take some Fridays if I don't have classes again and just go watch some baseball because I do really enjoy it. And it helps that the team, I think, should be pretty good. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I think after these two games, I think the pitching's in a good spot. Yeah. I, I think that's really my, my takeaway from the first from the first two, Ken, as Landon mentioned earlier, we record on Wednesday, so the other one is about to get in progress in about an hour here. Uh, but look, I, like I said, I think I, I think the starting rotation will figure itself out. But the, whatever happens with the starting rotation, the bullpen is going to be in a really good spot. Cody Frank looked really, really good on Monday, and you know it's tough. It's tough to replace Cade Povich and Chance Roach. Those guys are definitely you know starters at the college level who who were, were very key last year. Uh, but behind him, you have Shea Shoneman, you have Kyle Perry. Both of those guys are going to be vying for that number one, number two spot in the rotation. Then after that, it's kind of up there. You know, right now, uh, you have David Ornelas, the transfer from Texas A&M, who followed Rob Childress. Uh, at least that's what I think. Um, you have him. He can. He can definitely. He was on yesterday. I mean, he's a type of pitcher that you really like. Uh, to watch as a fan because he takes zero time in between his pitches. He is all business, uh, and he had some really, really good stuff yesterday. And then and someone I was surprised by and actually excited that um, he did so well yesterday was Braxton Bragg. And Bragg had a four-inning appearance in the first weekend series last season against Purdue, and then after that, he looked good in that Purdue series. Of course, Purdue didn't end up being very good overall as, as a program, that season, but he struggled for the rest of the year, didn't have another appearance that was longer than two innings. Yesterday, he goes four innings. He was all around the strike zone, uh, and he he looked really, really good yesterday. So I think both of those guys, uh, in addition to um, Shahneman and Kyle Perry, are going to be in the conversation for that starting rotation. Yeah, Perry and, and Shonam are, are two guys that, you know, they, they pitched in the important games last year, right? Like, Hroch and Povich did as well, but behind those two guys, it was Perry and Shahneman up next, basically, to start games. So those are your two with the big game experience. They're comfortable pitching in the Big Ten. That number three starter is interesting, though, because, of course, you know, over the course of the weekend series, you have your three guys. And, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to it. The stat line on Bragg particularly impressive yesterday so four shutout innings like you said one hit no walk six K's you'll take that every day of the week and, and twice on Sundays yeah it was that, really that's really solid. impressive well uh, and so Kyle Perry made the start yesterday went one inning about 25 pitches uh only gave he gave up two walks it was just a couple of guys he got up in the count early and just let him escape uh but he wasn't necessarily bad it was interesting that they they pulled him when they did only after one inning uh and then Ornelas comes in and he goes an additional four innings, and his stat line was almost the exact same as Bragg. I think he had one more strikeout. Yeah, uh, it says here, yeah, uh, struck out seven, two hits, no walks, and three innings of work. <laughs> seven batters in 3.1 innings. So seven out of ten guys that you're facing, uh, that you're recording outs on, that you're striking out, that's really, really good. Um, and that just means your stuff's nasty, or at least working on that particular day. So there definitely are options, and the pitching talent on this team is really, really impressive, and I think could be a thing that will carry it um, for a good portion of this year, in, in my opinion, it's fair to say. Yeah, and when you look at the bats yesterday, that was one thing I was a little bit concerned about. But at the same time, Max Anderson, an all-star in the Cape Cod League this summer, now he comes back as a sophomore, and he's going to have to step into a leading role. So will Bryce Matthews, freshman. Now he moves from second base over to shortstop and some big shoes to fill to replace Spencer Schwellenbach. But those two guys, with the addition of Cam Chick as well, are going to have to be big bats for this team this year. Yeah, watching uh, that battery in the infield of uh, Anderson and Matthews is going to be really fun. Those those two were both really good last year when they saw action, uh, you know, aside from shortstop when, when Schwellenbach was playing there. But I think that those two players are more than capable of filling in and taking that role. They're both very competent, good fielders, nice bat as well. I'm really looking forward to seeing how they uh, develop. But, yeah, the big question mark right now is which bats are going to take that leap from last year to this year in order to complement that pitching and get this Nebraska baseball team back to where it was last year, which was an NCAA tournament team taking a really good Arkansas squad down to the wire. And so. with the non-conference schedule, I think they have a really good shot at that. Also this week, I think UC Irvine 
uh, announced a, a non-conference. The dirt series. bags. Yes, I think it was. Long, I think it's Long Beach State. Long Beach State. But they're the dirt yes. bags, which yes. is awesome, and yeah. I want to go watch them. We played a team in high school called the Dirt Bags. What, what is the what is the meaning? Like, what what's the dirt bag? What does that mean? I mean, I I think, and so there was a back and forth between Evan Bland and Willie Bauer on this, uh, but I I was always under the impression it's like the base. You know, like generally, like on the on an old base, you know, an old field, you'd have a base and it'd just be a bag of dirt, or just like a it's, yeah, the base is filled with dirt. Literally, that's what I thought. It, it, it says on this ESPN article that they were a mismatch group. I don't know. This doesn't make any sense. To me. <laughs> well, they're coming to town in March, and that was announced this week as well. So a little bit of Husker baseball news there for you. Uh, so as we move. Now to talk a little Husker volleyball. Actually, one final note on Husker baseball too. Yesterday I was sitting there and we get to the seventh. It's scoreless, and I was really, really nervous about the bats. And then, uh, then Cam Chick stepped to the plate after being 0 for like seven combined prior to this in in the scrimmage, uh, both yesterday and uh, or Tuesday and Monday. And he just cranks one to left center, deepest part of the park, like 405. Uh, I was like, okay, no, the bats will be okay. The bats will be fine. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Husker Volleyball, a really good weekend and a really good couple of weeks for the Huskers. And, uh, of course, the big win last week really was the Penn State match. They took it in four. Generally, that goes to five, so uh, that's a win there. Certainly for Nebraska, a big one. They move up to number nine in this week's poll and have a really, really solid shot uh, at going into Purdue undefeated. Yeah, a really, really impressive week. It was a much-needed week. Nebraska really, really needed a victory and a convincing one at that over Penn State badly. It was able to go in there and do the job. And, yeah, you're right, a, a match that usually is a little like a 3-2 t- sort of deal. But Nebraska really just was super impressive throughout that entire stretch. Hit well, had more kills, had more digs, just kind of took it to Penn State on the road, which is a really good sign for this team as it continues to develop and experiment and tinker under Cook. And things might be set a little bit on that front there. But, you know, and to follow that up with a sweep of Rutgers, which, of course, you know, Rutgers isn't too great in the scope of the Big Ten. But to keep that streak going, you're now up to six in a row. And the sweep streak, too, Mm. (laughs) to do that against everyone. Everyone, you know, but Penn State is something else, too. Yeah, Allie Batenhorst, a really, really good night against Penn State. She really uh, was a – I don't know. I don't know I don't know if I want to say it was, like, you know, a coming out party for her. Uh, but, man, it was a good night. 15 kills on 32 swings, only three errors. She was just pounding it past a really solid uh, Penn State defense. Maddie Kubik in there as well with 19 kills. She led the team on that one. Uh, and then Lindsey Krause had 11, and then she added another additional nine in the match against Rutgers that went three sets on Sunday. So those between Krause and Batenhorst, those freshman outside hitters, they're starting to get more consistent. Krause has been really consistent over the last the stretch here. Batenhorst uh, is getting there. Like I, she didn't do just quite as well against Rutgers, uh, but she's well on her way to developing into the talent that John Cook knew she would. Yeah, and that's, you know, a really, really good sign moving forward if you get Baton Horst rolling too. Uh, one of the best prospects, of course, and one of the crown jewels of that Nebraska volleyball recruiting class coming into the season. And for players like that, sometimes it's just about the level of competition. You're up for a big game against Penn State on the road, and that mindset mentality can slip a little bit when you're just playing Rutgers at the rack and, and you know, on a random Sunday afternoon. But getting that, getting that, you know, consistent play down, and it'll help too. Once Nebraska's consistently lining up with big opponents, and you know, it's easy to get your players up for that. But yeah, uh, looking for more consistency out of her. But yeah, she's that's really impressive. That 15 kills against Penn State. That's yes. big, that's big time. Yeah, no, it is. That's and it's a huge time. confidence booster for her. So it'll be interesting to see how she performs this week. Matches tonight, eight o'clock, uh, as we record this tonight, uh, against Indiana uh, on Wednesday, and then Saturday against Illinois. Illinois, a little feisty program. So that, that one might be one to watch out for. Uh, so, But Oscars have a chance to win both those this week, go to 8-0 in Big Ten play, 13-3, or rather 7-0 in Big Ten play, 13-3 overall. Actually, just kidding. I'm looking at the wrong box score. 8-0, Big Ten play, 14-3 overall, um, with next week uh, showdowns against Iowa, 
uh, which will be a likely win. That one's on the road, and then Purdue, which is which is really the big the big match that comes October twenty third on Saturday at home. So really, really big week ahead for this program. One last note on that match against Rutgers, and this is really a big indicator of how well this team is serving right now. Uh, because Nebraska won the first one 25-19, the second one 25-9, and the last one 25-12, uh, if, my, if I'm remembering correctly. And it, in those first two sets, after they were over, they were hitting under 200. So they were not killing the ball very well at all. And they were still um, cruising, really, past Rutgers because of how well they were serving. They've been serving incredibly well the last couple of weeks. Yeah, that's definitely something that's different for sure, but... A good sign to see. Rutgers hit just 0. .42, 0. .042, yeah, and the defense which is there. bad too. Right. Uh, but yeah, the the general defense appears to be coming into its own and really dominating the teams that it should be dominating against the, the lower class of the uh, the Big Ten. But yeah, it that's it. It's cool to see the the serving really getting there. Lots of aces. Uh, you go through the the box score recap. It's like and an ace and an ace with a lot of these different right. Nebraska players. Really putting the pressure on from the jump and establishing, you know, we're Nebraska, we're going to come here, we're going to dominate the set, and we're going to do it right from the jump with, with quality service. So that's definitely something really cool to see and a storyline to monitor if that, you know, rears its head again and becomes something to watch and, you know, these games against the bigger Big Ten opponents. Kayla Caffey did not play on Sunday, the Husker senior middle, uh, dealing with an illness not COVID-related. Uh, hopefully nothing lingering. We'll see how that plays out this week as well, but that'll do it for us here on Scarlet Fever. For Landon Wirt, I'm Grant Hanson. You can follow Landon on Twitter at Landon Wirt, uh, W-I-R-T. And then you can follow me at Hanson15 underscore Hanson, H-A-N-S-E-N. Again, this is a Daily Nebraskan podcast, so follow at Daily N-E-B and at uh, D-N, as in Daily Nebraskan Sports, uh, for more information so again thank you so much for joining us we talked husker football and gave us uh, gave you our one two and you picks so we'll see how those play out husker baseball wrapped up fall ball this week we talked about that and husker volleyball as well join us next week we'll look back on the minnesota game and look ahead to other things in college football as nebraska's can be on a bye next week for the first time so we'll look at that uh, husker volleyball as well so thank you so much for joining us for landon Ward, i'm grant hansen and this is scarlet fever 